All right, imagine with me you're going on a vacation, uh, wherever you want to go. We'll say to the coast, whatever's a long drive away here. It's probably the East Coast. Some, we go to the Gulf, but imagine you're on a long, uh, you have a vacation that you're going on. Wonderful one, beautiful one. And uh, my question to you would be is that how, uh, how do you ride as a passenger in that vehicle on the way to the voca- uh, vacation? What kind of rider are you uh, when someone else is driving? Um, are you one who sleeps? Uh, which uh, maybe some of the teenagers uh, do that and sleep. I do want to pause right there and tell you uh, a funny story, a horrible story. But I was traveling one time to play a long trip with some of my college buddies. Um, we played football together, and my roommate was an offensive lineman, a big guy uh, that was in the front seat, longtime friend. Um, his nickname was T-Bear, by the way, so I tell you how big he was, Thornsberry. And uh, so we're riding down the road. If you remember, uh, he was asleep, and we were traveling together. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen where semis that pull 18-wheelers, semis will uh, sometimes pull another semi. I don't know if you know how they do that without their trailers, but a semi will pull another semi. And what they do is they turn, the one's pulling it, and they turn the other one backwards and put its back wheels up on the other semi, and they pull it down the interstate or travel it that way. So here's what happens. My roommate's asleep, and the guy's in the back, and we come up behind one of those semis that's being pulled, and obviously, so the idea is that one is pulling it, and the other one is facing us, right, because it's being pulled backwards down the interstate. So we get a plan together, as you can imagine, and uh, what we're going to do is go, (laughs) and here's what we do. I pull right up as close as I possibly can to that semi. It's facing us, and on the count of three, I go, one, two, three three and we go ah! I hit the brakes on the interstate hard and you can imagine my roommate he wakes up ah, and he sees a semi coming right at him and uh, he hit me I'll never he hit me so hard guys I, that's I'm just remembering that now. he hit me so hard <laughs> it took my breath I was injured he was so big and strong and um but it woke him up from his sleep. And that's what, you may don't want to travel that way. But how else do you travel? Uh, you don't want to travel with me. Maybe that's your point. But uh, maybe you're a person who reads a book or headphones and, um, and likes to distract yourself. The problem with you guys, if you're like my wife who likes to read, um, you never know where you're going. You never, you're oblivious to how to get to. When things get hard, one day you're like, hey, I need to go to Walmart. How do I get there? It's because you're always reading, right? Um, but they do that. Maybe it's fear. Maybe you're the person who rides and you're like, too fast, too fast, too slow, too slow. You're getting too class, whatever. Are you that kind of rider or passenger? Uh, are you a natural GPS? Are you always saying, hey, it's probably better to take a turn here. Why don't we go this way? Are you the passenger who always is that? As a matter of fact, I was meeting my father uh, and my brother this weekend in Nashville uh, to go to the, uh, for a day. Uh, it's Friday. And as I'm traveling down, I call my brother and he says, I said, how y'all doing? He said, well, my 75-year-old GPS that is riding with me, <laughs> meaning like my dad, it was to go left, go right here. It's better to go this way. He's like, we have a GPS. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're like my dad and you're the traveling GPS and you're consumed with getting there on time and controlling uh, getting your way there. And some, some of you may be travelers like me. If I'm in the passenger seat, I have a horrible stomach. And I get um, 
sick so quickly. As a matter of fact, I passed that on to Hudson. He has the same uh, issue. In, in Columbia, he, he, we were traveling around Columbia, and he threw up four times on our trip. <laughs> Had to come sit at the front. He and I were miserable. Some of our trips were so miserable in the uh, rocking and that. As a matter of fact, the first time I ever went on a drive with Ronnie, my father-in-law, in Atlanta, um, I met him, and we were going to play golf. And we, went, we rode an hour, which is about two miles in Atlanta. And <laughs> We rode an hour, and when I got there, I had to run. I ran to the end of the clubhouse and threw up. I was just so sick from the ride because he kind of has a style in the traffic, and I, there was kind of pumping, and I was white as a ghost. And so I'm a, I'm a passenger sometimes who's disoriented in my travel. Uh, all those might be possibilities on your way to vacation, the way you ride as a passenger. Um, and Proverbs, which we did last year, is sort of like, uh, in the falls, Proverbs is kind of like um, driving school. Uh, Proverbs, uh, the book of Proverbs, teaches you how to, um, if you'll just drive this way and obey these laws and go this speed limit and look for this and learn that, it, it, it will help you in general have a travel to your vacation that will go pretty well for you in general. And if you remember, we always said with Proverbs uh, that Proverbs, when you t- study Proverbs, Proverbs think path, don't think formula that always goes perfectly. But in general, the book of Proverbs, if you were to listen to it, it'd tell you uh, it would be like a driver trying to help you, a driver's school trying to help you, manual help you get on your vacation if you follow the rules. But Ecclesiastes is a book, um, it's, it's different. Um, Ecclesiastes is not the in general. It really seems to address a lot of the exceptions in life. And it, as, as, as Proverbs may tell you how to drive in general, this will help you get to your vacation if you drive this way. Um, Ecclesiastes says to the person who needs to wake up, wake up, stop sleeping. And to the controlling person who's the GPS and, and distracting them, the controlling person and trying to control it, it says stop controlling it. And what it says, Ecclesiastes, is that you're a passenger and you're not driving. As a matter of fact, here's the reality of Ecclesiastes. God is driving, and you're not in control of where you're going. As a matter of fact, he's driving you straight into death. There is a Mack truck coming. And it's called death. And so, we know that, right? The driving, I mean, in general, when you're driving on vacation, if you follow the general rules, you'll get there. But we know that when driving, there's also a chance for all kinds of wrecks and bad things. And Ecclesiastes is telling us that God is driving and you're headed for death. So that's a hard thing. And, um, and so, in relating to death in our passage this morning... Um, Ecclesiastes wants you to think about death so that it will rightly affect your life. That you need, we, we all need to think about it in a way and realize that there is a way that generally life goes, but all of us know that, that, that there is, whether we admit it or not, whether we're reading our books in life, whether we're sleeping, we know that there is uh, a Mack truck headed for us. And that's the reality. And so what Ecclesiastes is doing is trying to help you understand that and wake up. And so I, I feel like there's one or two ways, two extremes, we have to figure out how to relate to death in this life. One extreme would be to kind of morbidly think about it all the time in a way that we um, 
just are so fatalistic and it neutralizes you, right? But the other extreme would be to, be, to ignore it and to never think about it. And so I don't know the answer, but Ecclesiastes, our passage this morning, is going to help us that somewhere we have to learn to live in the in-between that. You can't completely ignore it, but at the same time we have to think about it, and at the same time it is a very difficult thing to think about as well. And it would probably, it actually would help us to live, it's such a thoughtful passage of God, Ecclesiastes, it would actually help you live with far greater joy and far greater fullness if you begin to think about it appropriately. It will actually make you live better. So that's what we'll do. There's only two, two points. How do, I want to say God offers this for us in two ways. He asks us to, um, there's two words, just to think if you need to outline. The first one is relinquish, and the second one is to relish. Relinquish and relish. That's how he's going to teach us to live properly in accordance in relation to death. Let's pray. God, would you um, help us, uh, would you tutor us, and Holy Spirit, would you comfort us, and would you, Move us to a place where we appropriately can think and live uh, and think about death rightly. And forgive us, God, that we don't. And um, forgive us, God, that we are always either trying to avoid it or we live in such fear that we're neutralized by it. But God, help us to get to a place of where Ecclesiastes seems to point us. Would you help us to get there? And Father, even in this room, even my own story currently is I'm thinking a lot about death and having experienced it near and facing it. We're, Father, we're aging. We have sickness. We have, we have um, I, I don't know all the ways, but in many ways everybody is affected by it right now. And some more than others. But would you move us to a place, uh, God, of, of faith and um, enlighten our minds and our hearts so that our hands may appropriately respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's begin in the verse, beginning there with verse, um, with verse 1, and we'll start with the relinquish. Here we will start, and so what I'm going to do is going to go through verses 1 through 6, and then 11 and 12. Uh, that will be the relinquish part. We'll see, God, the way you live in light of death is you relinquish something, okay? Then 7 through 10, we'll finish with the reward, that I mean, uh, the relish. Well, you have to relish something uh, in this life. So let me begin here, and we'll just walk through it in verse 1. Um, here, the teacher, the preacher is saying, who we, is, is referred to the person speaking uh, here in, in Ecclesiastes. Some think Solomon, some think it's a persona of Solomon. It's all kinds of debate. We've talked about the authorship. But here he goes. He says, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Now notice that he says, but, there's a transition there, and he said, I laid this to heart. So he's, he's coming to a point where he's... he's um, uh, some think that this is a transition in Ecclesiastes. The last three chapters of the book is kind of, we're seeing fuller his conclusions after looking at the world and processing the world under the sun with that phrase. And so he says, but I laid this, uh, I, I, but all this I laid to heart. So what is the all? What is it that he laid to heart? Now, 
It could be all first eight books, uh, eight chapters, but contextually, just coming into this, this is basically uh, what it is, is that he has, in seven and eight, just lamented uh, the injustices in the world and talked about them, described them, that good people have bad things happen to them, and bad people have good things to happen to them. And he finally, by the chapter eight, right before the verses, coming in to start chapter nine, he basically says that uh, there's just... At the end of the day, I don't know why that happens. And that really makes me upset. He says uh, that there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are the righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said, all this is vanity. And then he says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom, to see the business of the earth, then I saw the work of the Lord, that man cannot find out the work that God is doing under the sun. Meaning, you can't figure out why that happens. And so he says, I just lay it to heart that sometimes good people have bad things happen to them and bad people have good things happen to them. He just, there's no rhyme or reason. He just lays that out. He's coming down and showing, revealing a little bit of his heart. And he says how the righteous person and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. So then there's, I think, the most important phrase for the following verses all morning. Notice where he takes his heart, and he lays all that he's pro- pro- processing about the difficulty of this truth and the injustices that he sees, and he says, I, in my heart, I take it, and I put it in the hands of God. I'm resting in him. He's the one ruling over this. And that's where he puts it. Now, another way, what is he relinquishing? I told you that in order to learn how to appropriately relate to death, you have to relinquish something. There's many things. But one of the things he's saying here is that you have to, I think the passage tells us that you and I have to relinquish control. And here's what I mean by that. In one sense, it seems like, notice what the verse goes, it says that, and whether it's love or hate, man does not know. He doesn't know what's coming. But somehow in the world, oftentimes the way we think about it is that we think, like Proverbs, if I do everything right, everything will always go well for me. If I do everything good, then I'll always get good. And there's actually, there's many places you can go in Christendom where people tell you that the only reason things are going bad for you is because you're doing bad things. And if you'll start doing good things and believing more that good things will go for you. But you and I know that's not true. Just look under the sun to you and to me. We know that's not true. And so what he's, what he's, what he's saying is that our good thing doesn't seem to control God. Things still keep coming. The good doesn't seem to get what I would hope it would get. And the bad doesn't seem to get what it should sometimes. And so he lays it in the hand of God. Now, you'll notice that he says that um, whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Now, he's referring to that passage there. He is referring to God, what he will receive from God. And you're like, well, God doesn't hate us, does he? Because it's referring to the righteous there. And I really think that this is where, in Ecclesiastes, you see sort of this you have to understand the historical context of where he's speaking. And he, that we, there are skeptics present uh, around, or he has been among them. 
And the style of Ecclesiastes, the prose and the, the poetry of Ecclesiastes, actually is, is um, very similar to what we know in that history in that particular time period where they think that Ecclesiastes is born. That the style and the way it's written is that of the way skeptics would talk about it out in the market or in the square or in the classrooms where they would be. And so he seems to kind of just embody a little bit of the skeptic's language as he goes throughout things. He kind of moves back and forth. It's true, it, it, and we think he's a believer as well, that the teacher is, is that. But think about it. Like in, in chapter 1, when he says the vanity of vanities, and he says that the, um, he looks to creation, and he says the water just runs to the sea, but the sea never fills up. And then it uh, rains again, and it comes back, but the sea never fills up, and it just kind of this endless cycle go. And he looks at it and says, that's vain. Well, in one sense, he's kind of... Yes, he, he's using the language of the day, and he's processing that, and it's true in that. But we also know that that's, that's not true biblically, that, that that's not vain, because Psalm 19 tells us that, uh, that, 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 the, that the heavens declare the glory of God. Whatever that process is, it brings glory to God. It's not vain, right? It actually helps sustain life, and it's, and it's a process that goes through. And so he moves back and forth between the language of that, of the skeptics and the, and the, and the language that he uses, and particularly here to say it feels like, I don't know what's coming, but it's, it appears like it's either love or hate coming from God. And I don't know which one's going to be. And he's even saying that language out of putting things into God's hands. You see that? And I don't know what's going to come. So... He's relinquishing control. It's such humility here. He's like, I, I can't even figure out what's going on. Both are before him. So he gets to verse 2. It's the same for all since that same event. So that same event there in the ESV is referring to death. So it happens to everyone. The same event happens. And he gives you five, uh, six lists there of kind of either the sinner or the, or the good person or the clean or the unclean, the one who swears. He gives you, he said, it happens. It doesn't matter whether you're good or bad. He's repeating what he's already been talking about in the previous chapter. It doesn't matter. Death comes to all. Now, I wonder, <laughs> at some level, he's like, there's where the justice will finally come when death comes. But it does seem, it is such a, a, a difficult thing. He's saying that it, death comes to everyone. It doesn't seem to. It actually is saying that. It's the same for all. Then verse 3 comes, and it gives a little bit more darker. He, say, he describes this, the fact that this comes to everybody is that this is an evil that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Also that the hearts of children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and they, uh, that they go to the dead. Now he gets into this. It's not, it's not just that, um, um, what he's saying, well, I'm sorry. What he's saying about evil here is that evil, uh, what he's saying about here is he means this, is that this is an evil thing that death comes. Death is, in it. Death is a result of evil. It's a result of the fall. It's a result of sin. That's what's in this fallen world. This is an evil, and it's an evil the fact that anybody has to die. 
And maybe he's even saying it's, 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 it's evil that even good people, quote unquote, have to die. But here, look what he does, though. Then he remembers, look, this is Genesis language, I think, personally, here. And he says that the same event happens to all. All the hearts of children of man. Children of man. What man? Adam, right? The son of man. Uh, we are the children of man. All the hearts of children of men are full of evil and madness in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. So it's not, it's not just that, e- that death is bad. It's also how death comes to us. And that it, it comes to people who are good and bad. And just how it goes about it sometimes is just terrible. And it makes no sense. But what's also true, and I think this is what verse 3 is saying, is that the hearts of children of man are full of evil. That's the death comes because of us. We're evil. We're sinners. And part of the reason it comes to us is it's our fault. One commentator says this, he says, To relate to death well, you realize that it is the limit of God placed on all his creatures who want to be gods. And it happens to me because I'm a sinner. In the sense, we all cause our own death. And death is dark, and it's difficult. Even our Savior cried out as he faced it. And he wept as he went to it. And all of us are the children of wrath. And all of us manifest things in our hearts. And the reality is that all of us deserve death. So it's an interesting, sobering thought when you think, wow, it's unfair that it comes to everyone. But at the same time, you realize, no, it should come to everyone, including me. And that's where he goes. But then he knows in verse 4, he says, But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, that's a funny phrase there. It's a whole proverb. If you see the, the dead, whenever you see, um, here, here's what it means. Uh, dogs were viewed as scavengers. It would be the equivalent as a rat, what we think about rats now. That's the way they thought about dogs, not the way we do in the West or in America that their dog man's best friend. They were thought of as scavengers, okay? And uh, they were. Oh, I can remember some was it Jezebel that was maybe eaten by the dogs? They said she just she was not worth. They gave her over the dogs. The dogs weren't worthy were worthy to have her, and she was worthy to have the dogs when she died. I mean, when they put her in the streets. And you may remember Mephibosheth was the guy who said, "I'm a dirty dog, and I'm not worthy to be in your presence." When he was talking to David when he became king. I mean, so it's a it's a negative sense. But here's what the point is of this particular verse: because a lion was regal, he was still like we view him, the king of the jungle, a majesty, right? But here's what he's saying: is this? Is he says, "But he who is joined." With all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, here's what it means it means this that while we're still here on earth, even if you have a little life, you finally, if you're, if, if you're alive, you have a chance to live in light of death in the right way. There's a chance that you could change. And enjoy this thing called life that God has given you. Notice what it says in the next verse. For the living know they will die. 
they understand it. But the dead person doesn't have a chance anymore. He, he's gone on. Their life is gone. And their envy has, been, has perished. And forever they have no more share. Meaning all of their emotions and all they experienced just moved on. But the living, even if it's a dead dog, has the opportunity to let life, which is where we're going in verse 7, to let death have its right effect on me, which will take you to joy. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. They're gone. So here in one sense, he's saying, the preacher is saying, relinquish control. Relinquish control that you're not in control and controlling your death. And death, but death, here's the reason to relinquish control, because death is certain. You're not in control. Death is governing. It's coming, and you can't stop it. Relinquish trying to control God in life. Accept that reality. But then you go to verse 11 after, verse 11 and 12 when you go down there, which is what Chris preached on beautifully last week. That's why I'm not going to look at it. But also notice it says this, And again I saw under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those the knowledge. But time and chance come to them all. There again, he's using language. Is chance the way the world operates? No. God's in sovereign. But he, you see him using language. It looks like it. It appears like it. Time and chance is just happening. That's what it feels like. It appears like things come out of the blue. And especially what we think here, the time. But a time and chance happens in them all. For man does not know his time. Some think he's talking about the death there. But here's the point. Death is certain. And sometimes it's, un- and you don't, and it's also uncertain when it's going to happen to you. It can hit you out of left field. So what do you do with that? That it's certain and it's uncertain. That it could come out of nowhere. What he's trying to get you to do, one step, the first step, is relinquish your control, trying to take control of your life. That things just happen and you're not in control. And when those things come out of left field, you realize that you're not king. And you realize you're out of control. Relinquish that. Death is certain, and yet it's certainly coming, yet I don't know when it's going to happen. So there's where we find ourselves. We live in between those. We know it's coming, but we're uncertain when. It could come out of left field. So then we get to verse 7. Relinquish, what death ought to teach you to do is relinquish control. All right? And if you're kind of trying to get control, and really you can try to get control of your life by reading a book, sleeping, being the GPS in the car, Trying to control the driver and tell them what to do and what they ought not be doing. Sometimes you just have a travel a path that's just you're sick the whole time. It's just a terrible path, and I don't even know why you have it. Or you can admit that you're not the driver. But there's one that's driving the car. And if you won't admit it now, something will happen that will make you realize it. So oftentimes it does. But learn it now. And if you've already experienced things, embrace it more. That we're not control, relinquish control. Open 
your hand. He said it's in God's hands, right? So open your hand of all the things you're holding on to to try to act like you're ruling the world and think you're ruling the world and let go of those and realize you're not. So then we go to the relish. Verse 7. So he says, death ought to teach you, teach you to re- relinquish control. And then verse 7. But go. Doesn't say but. It says go. Go. So there's the imperative. It's telling you to go do something. So it's not just sit around and wait for it to come. It's not just ride. There's a way that you can travel to vacation, by the way. I don't know if you heard that in illustration. We are going to a good place. There's a way that you can travel and actually enjoy the trip. There's a way you can travel. Look, he says, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. All right, let me just stop there. That, I mean, this is, this is the go is the wake up, like to T-Bear, right? I told him, wake up. He had to wake up. You got to wake up from driving down the road. Enjoy. What it means is to take pleasure. God rules over everything, so now... Quit trying to be king. Step back and enjoy what he's given you. Step back and enjoy what he's given you. Rest in the fact that he's a good driver. Um, the problem with that is that the reason we don't enjoy things is because we worship them. Once you begin to worship something, then it's no longer enjoyable. Right? So once you begin to, that's just, that's what we know about idolatry, right? I mean, C.S. Lewis says this, he says, natural loves are allowed to become gods that are allowed to become gods do not remain love. He actually has become a, a complex hatred is what he says. Do you see that? So what we're to do is we're to take things in life and all that God has given us and we're to enjoy them and enjoy them but not worship them. That's what he's saying. That's what the gain is about in the, when it's talking about Ecclesiastes, the gain is looking it's another way of saying of worship or idolatry. What gain was there in all your toil? Meaning if you look to work and you look to all the gifts that God's give you, children, families, and all those things, and those things become the thing that you worship or you look to for gain and purpose, it will never deliver. But if you will realize and let go of those things and trying to control them and try to get life and realize that death is coming and you're really a lot more powerless than you knew, you're really not in control, and face death, guess what death will do for you? It will let you let go of those things and enjoy them instead of worship them. Because when you worship them, you crush them. Children are crushed because their parents worship them. And they put their whole identity in that. You will worship and destroy things. But if you can step back and realize death is coming and God is king and I let go of those things and let death show to you what it should, then now we have the opportunity to enjoy it. And Psalm 104 says that God says, You cause the grass to grow and the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food and the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man and oil to make the face shine and the bread and strengthen man's heart. The point is to enjoy it. He's like, let death take you to where you can fully live. Be merry, drink wine, eat. Then it tells you to what? Put on a garment, suspend. let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. What they mean by that is, is that remember you put on ashes and sackcloth when you were mourning or terrible and life was? But the opposite was true in the ancient world. In particular, for God's people, you put on sackcloth, put on white clothes and oil on your head to, to prepare to enjoy for party. It's like dress up and enjoy where you're going. Take the moment by moment. And then notice it says, find what your hands to do and do with it right. So 
Um, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. Now let me just say this. The Sheol there is not hell. It's, it's, oftentimes Sheol means grave or grave. It's not a parallel to hell in the New Testament. So there, it's like, otherwise it's just going to go to the grave. Enjoy the gifts of life that God has given you. And let death, death teaches us that. It forces it to do, to do that. Can I um, just say that this list of the things it tells you to enjoy, bread and wine and clothing and uh, oil on your head and, and put your hand to a great work, does that sound like creation to you, the story of the garden? <laughs> where he made a place for us to eat and drink. And what did he tell him where he was taking him to the promised land? Even then, he's like, I'm taking you to a place of milk and honey. But God wants you to enjoy. Do you see what it says there in verse 7? It says, for God has already approved what you do. He takes pleasure in you taking pleasure. He, he has already said in creation, it is good. And he tells you, to enjoy the moments. Now, listen, I know that life, there, there are seasons where things are so hard. This sounds like Shane, you're, the Bible's trying to tell me to make lemons out of lemonade. Or make lemonade out of lemons, sorry, backwards. Concussions. <laughs> That's not what it is. The Bible clearly, the rest of the Bible tells us to lament and to understand that those, those struggles and to be real about things. I think Ecclesiastes is trying to make us be real, that we, we face death and there's things that are hard. But this is, a, this is a principle, a guiding principle for life, that what death ought to communicate and teach us about how to, how to live is it ought to make us let go of things and control and learn to relish the things that God gives us from the big and from the small. Guys, does that sound like our retreat? Embrace the sorrow and be warmly present. Do you remember that principle for those that went on our retreat? I can't explain all that. But our men's retreat. Let go and enjoy, enjoy the life. This list here that it gives is not an exhaustive list. I think it's just echoing back to creation, the wife, relationships, vocation, go do something. We were made, it echoes back to what the garden intended. It intended, it's, there's where the first marriage was, and it's relational and, and that. But here, it, it's telling us to enjoy. Let me, let me read one, one guy, Dave Gibson, I've liked, I've loved his book on this particular, on Ecclesiastes, and he says this. But sin does not increase everything. So if we are to tap into the preacher's worldview and train and train of thought, I think an expanded list would go something like this. Beyond the list we're talking about here. Ride a bike. See the Grand Canyon. Go to the theater. Learn to make music. Visit the sick. Care for the dying. Cook a meal. Feed the hungry. Watch a film. Read a book. Laugh with some friends until it makes you cry. Play football, run a marathon, snorkel in the ocean, listen to Mozart, ring your parents, give them a call, write a letter, play with your kids, spend your money, learn a language, plan a church, 
Start a school. Speak about Christ. Travel somewhere where you've never been. Adopt a child. Give away your fortune and then some. Shape someone else's life by laying down your own. You may be able to add to the above list in a hundred ways. He says, I hope you can add at least a few more. It seems like the overall, one of the overall points of Ecclesiastes is to remind us that we're not God. And we do live in a fallen world under the sun. And difficult things happen. But the driver of our car is good. And he wants you, while you take this trip with him, this story and this life, to look out the window and talk to the other people in your car with you and take in the scenery and look at the mountains that you're driving by and see how beautiful Alabama is as you go all the way to the coast. Does, um, does oil, bread, and wine, and a meal, and new clothing, and work to do sound like somewhere else? It's glory. Maybe he's referring to a wedding. It's wedding language, I think. It's where we're headed, to a feast. And he's saying, enjoy the things now, but don't worship them. And one of the ways that will help you not to worship them and worship all your life and try to live in this world, in this fallen world, and look for gain here is to remember death. It will drive you to remember, oh, I'm not in control. And learn to enjoy the gifts that God has given. Listen, this is what C.S. Lewis meant when he says, the reason that things that we enjoy, a new cup, a fresh cup of coffee in the morning, a sweet word of I love you from someone as they walk out, a phone call from a friend, great barbecue from Jack's, or some, you know, Jack's barbecue. The reason we, the reason they're good and they're enjoyable is because they're a taste of heaven. They're just a taste the greater feast that we will have. So, Jesus came up to people and he went to a funeral and he said, I'm, he went to a funeral and um, th- this is what's cool about Ecclesiastes. I, I know I'm long this morning, but Ecclesiastes is kind of, it doesn't tell the whole story. It can't. But it does kind of push back the brush and the difficulties in life that we ought to be considering so that we can kind of start thinking of heaven. There's glimpses there. You see that heaven language? But now in the New Testament, we get the full story. And Jesus, actually, in John 10, y'all looked at in the study, so he goes and he shows up to a funeral where death is that. And he, if you, he seems to embody what we just talked about this morning. 
I mean, did you ever thought about it? I mean, as he walks that story that Lazarus has died, well, he catches word of it. It didn't tell us our story, but you know, he catches word of Lazarus and he waits four days and doesn't go running to go help raise Lazarus from the dead. Do you know that in John 10? That's always perplexed me. He finds out about it. He says, I can't go now. What the heck? But he's, he's not frantic when it comes to death. It's not driving everything he does, is it? But then he does go, and he does face it four days later. And Martha comes running out to him. No, yes, Martha comes running out first. And she's frantic, and he's frantic. And if you'd only been here, if you'd only been here, right? And he, there's a frantic, but he says, wait a minute, he'll be, he'll be fine. Well, he'll be fine, yeah, when we're all resurrected. He says, no, 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 I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm here. I'm the one driving the car. And then Martha, he goes and gets Martha. Martha comes and she's, she's sad. And he, he tells her, she takes him to the tomb. And right, she's like, whoa, 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 it's been four days. The stench is going to be bad. And he's like, do you, do you not know that you will believe and see that believing you will see my glory? But as she came running, what does it say he did? He, it says that he was deeply moved by her sadness. It says it twice when she came up to him. So death saddens him. We weep over it. We don't brush it under the rug. It's a bad deal. And then he weeps. He didn't just say, oh, God's sovereign, and I'm about to raise him from the dead. Don't you worry about it. Everybody be merry. No, he actually enters into the pain that we feel in this world. And then he raises him. It may feel like a Mack truck, but I, I'm driving. I, I rule this, this trip that we're going through. And then he raises him from the dead. Now, Lazarus got a bum deal. He was already in heaven. He had to come back. But he still dies, right? And this is the same sermon I preach at every funeral, including my mom's. What's the point if Lazarus dies? What's so great about him raising him from the dead? There's a lot of neat things about that. But here's the main point, I think. In the very next verses in John 10, we learned that the Pharisees were furious. And they hated Jesus and they reported him to the, to the, to the Romans. And on that day, Jesus came to a funeral and inaugurated his own death. So what looked like was just a ride, there was really something going on in the grand scheme of things. He actually inaugurated his own death so that from that day forth, he could come to every funeral of his people and say, I am the resurrection." I know it's been a long trip. And it's felt like, but I, he, he's, he, he, he's taking care of it. And because of that as well, he, Jesus, ate, you know, Jesus ate his way. I read one commentator. He said he ate his way through the, through the Gospels. He came on the scene eating and partying. The first miracle was a party and a wedding. He came on eating. Eat and drink and be merry. 
We're not in control, and death is coming. Sometimes it may come out of, the, out of the left field. But our king rules, and he's driving it, and we have an end that's great, and so you might as well enjoy it. And we can weep when we need to weep, and we can cry and enjoy. But enjoy life, and quit stressing over it. Quit looking out for everything to find your gain and everything in life, even the good things. Death is coming. Eat, marry, drink, and have wine. That's our story. We ought to be the most joyful people everywhere we go. Because we view life as a gift and don't look to it for gain. Because our gain is found in a person. Amen. Let's pray. God, would you help us to live um, with death as the end and, and have an appropriate relationship with it. That it would, that it would somehow have its, somehow we would... Um, Learn to live in a way that forces us to have joy and enjoy our people and enjoy the life and the small things that you've given us. And we can have great purpose because we know you're king and that we are in your hands. What a great thought, God. The whole verse started with that we took it to heart and he laid that everything is in God's hands. God, oh, help us to live that way. I'm thankful that death has been consumed, that it has lost its sting. It doesn't have the last word. Death will die because Christ has risen. Amen.